0: i recounting a little story that I actually remember pretty, pretty vividly. When I was uh, and I may have told you some of this before but when I was 16 my dad came to me and he said, uh, I'll never forget, he came to me and he said hey Brent, how would you like to go skydiving? This is my dad, okay? There were a couple things that seemed a little funny about that. One is, it was my dad and at 16 your dad seems like an old man I think and so I'm thinking, you know, I, and it probably was pretty old. I mean he was probably forty. I mean, so uh, so uh, my wife didn't laugh at that one because she's uh, But uh, so he says you wanna you want to go skydiving. So one thing is I'm thinking, you know, the, the old males may go skydiving. The, the second the second part of that request that I found a little bit troubling was that my dad actually knew that I had a paralyzing fear of heights. When I was a kid, I was terrified of heights. When we would drive over a bridge, I couldn't breathe. I'd have to shut my eyes. When we, you know, if, if we had to climb up on something, go up in an elevator. I remember we, had a, we were at a hotel one time. And they had one of those glass elevators that you'd go up and you could see out. And it was just like, I just wanted to die. In fact, I remember when I, when, uh, we would go to like Six Flags, or sometimes we'd go to Kings Island um, and you'd go up to the roller coaster, and I remember praying that I would be too short to get on to the roller coaster. <laughs> and I'd have the line, I'd be like, ah, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to make it. Because I didn't want to say, oh, no, I just, I wanted someone else to tell me I couldn't go on. So, so I was terrified of heights, but there was one other, one other fact that my father knew when he asked me to go skydiving, And that was, he knew that I actually wanted to make him proud. That I wanted to impress him. You know, every young man wants to, in some way or other, impress his dad, or make his dad proud, or not make his dad embarrassed, at least. Let's put it that way. Um, So I said what every 16-year-old kid would say in my situation. I was like, yeah, man, whatever, that's cool. No problem. Totally not scared. Uh, So we go down to the the parachute place, which seemed like it was way out in the country somewhere. And they do four hours of training before you jump. You get four hours of training. And the training is directed almost exclusively at what you should do in case your parachute doesn't work. (laughs) So it's not a very confident builder. So so one of the things that they taught us, they spent a significant amount of time teaching us how to land if, A, our parachute didn't work, or B, we had to use our emergency sheet. And I'm thinking, and so in the way they would do it, it would say, you want to land first hit your feet, then you want to roll to your ankles, then your knees, then your hips, then over your back. And I'm like, oh yeah, sure, at terminal velocity, towards your, I'll be sure to line that up so that, um, the second thing they taught us is, you know, how to release your main chute and pull your emergency chute. And they have a little step-by-step thing where you go, the 1001, 1002, 1003, so... And I just remember, another, again, thinking, plummeting towards the planet, you know, at 100 and, what's terminal velocity, 120 something. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to do my account. I'm sorry. I'm coordinated, but I'm not that coordinated. Uh, and the other thing that really stuck out to me is that they said, once you, so you go up in these little planes, and there's a little strut, like a little uh, step that comes out. And they said to us, once you step out onto that step, it's actually more dangerous for you to come back into the plane. So once you're out on the step, you're jumping. You're not allowed back into the plane. That's what they told us. Um, and again, I remember thinking, really, is it really safer for me to jump at 3,000 feet from in the air, rather than sort of crawl back in the plane? So, nevertheless, we go through this training. I'm terrified. We go up in the plane, and my dad was not terrified. He was like, He jumps first, and I remember just my heart pounding. We're up in this little plane, there was only room for my dad, me, the jump instructor, and the pilots. It was a tiny little plane. He jumps first, and I can't see him. I can't see if his parachute's open. I'm looking out the window, I can't see him. Uh, But pretty soon, boom, I can see his chute open. He comes down and lands. (laughs) And then it's my turn. Uh, And I don't think I have ever been as terrified in my entire life. You put your foot out on the step, and you reach out on this little strut that holds up the wing. You pull yourself out on the strut, and then you have to let your feet go off the step. And you are literally hanging from this diagonal brace that holds up the wing, and there's a guy sitting there going, Go! You know? <laughs> You're like, okay, just give me a second. Uh, you know, and I jump, and I jump, and my shoot <laughs> over. And everything worked. And uh, I remember, I had not prayed a lot. I didn't pray a lot as a teenager. I prayed for the entire, not just until my shoot over, even after the shoot over. I was just praying. Uh, and, I, and, and I landed, and I just remember thinking, that was awesome. That was fantastic. And I ended up going back 60 yeah. times and jumped up, you know, a whole bunch of times. And... When I think back about it, I I think that my dad called me to that adventure for a number of reasons. One is, he knew there would be risk. He knew that there would be danger. He knew that it would require a level of commitment from me. He knew that it would require a level of focus. But most importantly, he knew that doing this would help me to overcome this paralyzing fear that I had in my life. When someone loves us, when someone really, really wants the best for us, they challenge us. They don't placate us. They don't just allow us to get by with what we're doing. When someone really loves us, they challenge us to become better. They challenge us to reach new heights. And we're going to spend the next ten weeks on a new sermon series called Walking the Walk. The call, the challenge, and the adventure of following Jesus. We spent a year... Studying the Book of Mark, uh, and we finished that up last week. We spent, we started in Mark chapter one, and went straight through Mark chapter sixteen. It was, it was incredible, and we learned about what Jesus said and what Jesus did, and about his resurrection, about his claims, and about who he was and who he is. And now we're going to spend ten weeks discussing and and exploring what it means for us to follow that guy. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? So let's jump into we're going to uh, a passage today's Luke chapter nine, and then for the next ten weeks we're going to each week we're going to study a different um, sort of attribute of what it means to follow Jesus. So today is sort of the introduction of this ten week sermon series. We're going to study Luke chapter nine, verse fifty seven through sixty two, um, and just to give you some context, what we're about to read is what Jesus said to some would be followers. While he was on his way to Jerusalem in the very final days of his life, he's actually the scripture before this says that he had set his face on Jerusalem. He knew that he was going marching to Jerusalem to give his life, to sacrifice his life for us. And so, think of it in the context of, of where he's going when he when he says this to his would-be uh, followers, starting at verse fifty-seven. As they were going along the road, this is Jesus and his disciples. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Let's stop there just for a quick second. This is the first time in the Bible that someone has volunteered to follow Jesus. Without Jesus saying, follow me, this is the first instance in this gospel where um, someone says, hey, hey, I will follow you, volunteers himself and Jesus' response is fascinating because you would think in one respect that Jesus was trying to amass followers he would say great, come follow me you will be rewarded richly and things will be fantastic for you and you're going to love it and there's a 401k plan and there's benefits and it's just going to be fantastic Uh, but Jesus says just so you know foxes have holes, birds have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, there's risk follow him. This, is, this is the response to the first would be disciple. Verse 59. To another person, he said, Follow me. But he said, the, the, the person said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, This is an amazing passage, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This would have been an incredible Incredibly shocking statement to a first century Jewish follower. Because in Judaism, the commandment, the fifth commandment is to honor your father and your mother. Filial piety, honoring your parents, is a massively important concept in first century Judaism. In fact, in the Sirach, uh, which is some, some uh, a passage that, that was written a couple hundred years before uh, Christ, it says in in chapter 38, 16, this is Jewish wisdom, wisdom literature, it says, My son shed tears for, one who, for the one who is dead with wailing and bitter lament. As is only proper, prepare the body. Do not absent yourself from his burial. So if any young Jewish man in the first century would have known that it is his proper duty, his proper respect to go and bury his father. And here Jesus is saying, no, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me and come." God. That would have been shocking. That would have been a shocking statement. Is Jesus saying, don't honor your parents? No. But what he is saying is the primacy, the urgency, the preeminence, the, 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 the importance of following me trumps everything. Jesus is saying if you're a follower of me, that trumps everything. Your relationship to your family, your relationship to your, your father needs it, Following Jesus is Number one priority is what he says. Um, some commentators have actually tried to soften this statement and say, well, maybe the guy was saying that his father was sick and that he wanted to go and stay with his dad until he passed away at the very I end mean, that Jesus was saying, no, you know, it, that's going to take too long. But there's nothing in the text that warrants that interpretation. Jesus really is saying, I'm more, following me is more important than it. Okay. Verse 61. Yet another said, another person said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this guy just wanted to go home and tell his folks, hey, I love you guys, I'm going to miss you, I'm going to be following Jesus for a while. And Jesus says, no. No. You put your hand in the plow, you can't look back. This is an incredibly challenging passage. This is an incredible. This is one of those passages where you know Jesus has his way of offending everyone in some respect or another. If you read the Gospels, you will be offended, no matter what, no matter what your predisposition is. He's going to say something that strikes you the wrong way. Okay, he's challenging us in this passage, um, and there are a few little points that I want to pull out of the passage, some themes that I think are inherent in this passage. Um, And the first one is the risk of the call, the risk of following Jesus. Um, St. Augustine is sort of known for saying, uh, when when he felt the call to become a Christian, one of his, in his his confessions, in his memoirs, he says uh, that he used to pray, Lord, make me chaste, but not just yet. He, he wanted to follow Jesus, but he wasn't quite ready to go there. Um, in the mid-1800s, there was a, a man named Hudson Taylor. He was a British Christian, and he felt a sense of call to the mission field. He felt called to go to China and to form missions and to preach the gospel. Um, and when he felt that call, when he decided to follow that call, he went all in. He learned the language. He learned the culture. And this, and, and this, and uh, Hudson Taylor ended up spending 51 years in China, founding 125 schools, uh, and encouraging hundreds, and even thousands, of missionaries to go out into the mission field. What's interesting about that period in in um, in time, in, in terms of the mission field, is that he inspired. Thousands of young missionaries to go out into these uh, into these areas, and they at that time, you know, were not didn't have modern medicine, and they would a lot of them would get these endemic tropical diseases that they didn't have. Um, they didn't have the ability to fight. And in fact, when they started going into Asia and, and into uh, different areas of the world, they would start to they would start to contract these diseases, and at one point, up to eighty percent of the missionaries that went to these countries would die within two years. And the missionaries at that point could have pulled the plug. This this whole missionary movement formed around this guy called the student volunteer movement, they could have pulled the plug and they could have said, look, we're sending these guys to these faraway lands and these faraway countries, and they're dying, and we need to stop it. This isn't the will of the Lord. What they did, and this is an amazing image. What they did is they said, well, we know that at least 80%, we know that almost all of these guys are going to die on foreign soil because they're not coming back. They're going and they're giving their life. And a lot of them will die within two years. And so what they started doing was packing their belongings. Instead of using suitcases and trunks, they would pack their belongings in coffins, and they would go to these countries, and they would just say we're here. They were willing to give their lives to for the mission of following Jesus. Jesus says to that one would-be disciple who says, wherever you go, I will go. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's a risk inherent, implicit in following Jesus. There is a risk. Um, but anything that you and I have ever done in our lives, anything we've done that has any merit or any value or any worth, Has required risk? Has there ever, have you ever done, if you think about it, there's anything that you have done that you're proud of? Anything that you've done that you, that you are happy with? Anything that you've done that really brings meaning to your life? Is there anything that you have done that hasn't required some level of risk? Everything we do requires risk. I remember, um, I was sort of, I got married a little later in life. And I was terrified of that level of commitment. I can say that now. Um, <laughs> um, I remember being on our wedding day. Rebecca and I got married in uh, in California, and we got married on the boat. And down in the bottom of the boat, they had this like, little room where you, you know, it was like a little waiting room. Um, and so me and, and the guys, the groomsmen, were down there. And uh, I just remember being like, my heart was pounding because I was still at that point going, this is a risk. Marrying someone is a risk. Jumping into that relationship, there's a risk involved. What if she turns out not to like me? What if things go bad? What if it just goes haywire? You know? And my cousin Daryl who's here today, he was, was a great comfort down in my best man, uh, was there just like, dude, come on, let's get it together, man. Let's pull it together. He's been married for a few years longer. Planting this church for us, all of us, was a risk. All of you who are here and have been participating, it's been a risk. You've stepped out into the unknown, and we have taken a risk. Right before, and I'll tell you a couple quick stories. Right before we planted this church, I'm with a buddy of mine who had done church planting before. And we met at the sugar right over here on the coffee shop. And his name's Ross. And I sit down with Ross, and I'm like, tell me about your experience with church planting. He goes, oh yeah, sure. he goes... We uh, planted a church, it's been several years ago now, um, and he wasn't the lead pastor, but he was on the staff. And they uh, they had it together. They had backing from their denomination. They had funding. They had uh, like a 25-foot trailer where they could haul all this equipment in. They rented out this big space. He said they had thousands and thousands of dollars worth of equipment that they had set up. They were going to be real hip and have like uh, little round tables. And instead of like seats, you know, round tables with the high chairs, and it's going to be cool. And he said they sent out flyers, and they spent thousands and thousands of dollars, and they got it totally dialed in and it was just ready to go. And they threw open the doors on day one, and three people came to church. Three people came to church. He said the church fold was in two weeks. And I was like, hey, thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was, uh, that was just about two months before we launched. So I remember coming home and saying, hey, uh, yeah, Ross told me an interesting story about a church launch that didn't go so well. You know, we were, we were, I can just speak to myself, I was terrified about the idea of following God's call and launching His church. Um, I would stay awake at night. I would dream about it. In fact, the poor setup crew, they just, they just had enough of me because, you know, we had a little trailer that we would pull our equipment to church in. And at midnight, the night before church, at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, I'm lying in bed going. Now, let me think. What if nobody comes to pick up the trailer? Can I pull the trailer out and look it to the van by myself? I better go find out. At 1 a.m. in my pajamas, I'm outside in New City in my house. And I'm opening the garage door. And I'm pulling the trailer by myself. And the trailer hits like a little bump in our driveway. And the wheel goes... <coughs> Breaks right off. Uh, So, uh, anyway, the guys did come in the morning, and they're all like now hauling it because there's no wheel. But, you know, it's just, it it was terrifying. The potential risk of like, what happens, you know? You you tell all your family, you get everybody going, you try to make people believe in this, and then what happens if it's just nothing? What happens if it doesn't work? Everything you do in life is a risk. And I'll say that, you know, I don't know how you feel I feel like the risk was worth it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, here we are. Yeah. Here it, and I feel like <laughs> a Helen Keller says, security is mostly superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Yeah. Those who challenge us love us, and they, and they love us, and they want us to take risks. You can't discover new oceans unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Mm. So the risk of the call. Number two is the demands of the call. Now I'm going to make an admission here. I like mixed martial arts. I like watching it. I tried to participate in it it briefly, (laughs) but it's easier to watch it. Much, much better. (laughs) Uh, And mixed martial arts is, you know, boxing, karate, jiu-jitsu, and all this stuff. Um, And there is a, uh, there's a, the president of the UFC is a guy named Dana White. Dana White um, is sort of this charismatic figure who has spearheaded this, development of this, of this sport. Uh, And in the, one of his shows, they have a show called The Ultimate Fighter. And the Ultimate Fighter, there's, you know, 16 or so young fighters, all of whom want to make it to the big time. They all come together on this show, and they fight in a tournament to see who's going to and who's going to get the, the contract at the end? Um, and Data White does this thing at the beginning of every season, which, which I find to be sort of funny, but the fact, you know, it's great. He gets there in front of these fighters and he says, This is going to be the most terrifying experience that you've ever had. This is going to be the most demanding experience you've ever had. This is going to be physically, emotionally, Spiritually, the most draining experience that you will ever have in your life. This is going to be terribly hard. It's going to be terribly uncomfortable. This is going to require a ton of pain. This is going to be a challenge. This is going to be there. And he's basically saying, don't do this. <laughs> and every kid in that group is sitting there going, yeah, bring it on. I want to be a part of it. Because he's saying, at the end of this, your life is going to be transformed. Jesus is telling us, in his scripture, the disciples, he's telling them, "Look, this is following me. Does not mean that things are going to be easy. Following me does not mean that everything is going to go peachy keen." And we're going to talk about the rewards of the call in just a minute. But but when he's pitching this to his disciples, you know, he's not glossing it over. He's saying, "Hey, the life of following Christ may present you with challenges and with difficulties. So think about it." Count the cost if you're going to follow me. And I, and I, and I find that approach to be wonderful. Because I, I feel like there's so much in, especially, you know, in America when we're comfortable and things are easy. And a lot of people are Christians. And it's not that tough to be a Christian here, you know. We can sort of gloss it over and it can just seem like, ah you know, it's just it's just a thing I do. It's like an ice cream social. I show up, you know, I meet a few people and say hello but Jesus is really saying, hey, to be really a follower, you're putting yourself out there. There could be a challenge to following Jesus. Um, there was a, uh, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I've talked about him a couple times. But in 1924, this guy was a young German theologian. He wa- wanted to go to seminary, and, and he was a really bright guy, and he was sort of an academic and an intellectual And he went, uh, he was in, he was studying theology in Germany. And then he he went over to New York for a little while to study at Union Theological Seminary in 1930. Went to study at Union Theological in 1930 in New York. And he met another young Bible student named Frank Fisher. Frank was an African American student who went to Union Theological Seminary as well. And Dietrich and Frank hit it off, they became friends. Frank said, hey, why don't you come to my church sometime? So Dietrich went to his church, and Frank went to the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And Bonhoeffer is this kid from rural Germany, and he goes to Harlem in the 1930s, he goes to the Abyssinian Baptist Church, and he's just moved by the the struggle in 1930 of the folks in Harlem who were trying to to, to make some progress and trying to move ahead, and how he he was struck by their... Reliance on God and their total immersion into God and their complete openness to God and how God and the scriptures soaked and saturated their lives. And he says, that's when I went from phraseology to reality. That's when I saw how the Christian faith is deep and real and powerful and in people's life. It's not just something that you think about and it's abstract. It's something real and powerful and moving deep and it can change culture and it can change the shape of someone's life and it can change the world and he begins to understand that and he goes back to uh, Germany and he begins to introduce these experiences that he had in Harlem to the folks back in Germany and of course we know that in January of 1933 he's in Germany and in January of 1933 Adolf Hitler rose to power the Nazi party took over and a lot of the churches there in Germany at that time said, well, hey, you know, this is the power structure, we're going to just work within. But Bonhoeffer said, look, this, this is not what Jesus calls us to. And just a few days after the, the Nazis took power, Bonhoeffer got on the radio and made a radio address undermining Hitler, undermining the Fuhrer, undermining the Nazi movement. His radio address was cut off in the middle. Uh, And as soon he became, he was starting to be under persecution by the Nazi party as they rose to power. Bonhoeffer tried to make changes within his church, within his denomination. But when the elections came for elders and for the bishops and deacons and everything in the church, they they overwhelmingly, the the election was rigged, and overwhelmingly the Nazi sympathizers took hold of the congregation and took hold of the denomination. And basically said, hey, we're Christians, but you know, we're going to follow Adolf Hitler. And Bonhoeffer was so distressed by this, and he felt that it was such an under it, it, it so under, it so violated what the gospel says that Bonhoeffer became sort of disillusioned, left Germany, went to London, taught in London for a couple of years, sort of pulled himself together, and finally just felt like, look, if I'm going to do something, I need to go back to Germany, and I need to get involved, and I need to make it happen. So Bonhoeffer goes back to Germany. By this time, the Nazi regime is very powerful. They've completely infiltrated the church. Bonhoeffer started an underground movement. And he he just taught people that the gospel does not allow for for this. It doesn't allow for, you know, mass killing of people. It doesn't allow for what the Nazis are doing to, to the Jews. And so Bonhoeffer started this movement. In fact, he got involved with a group of people that actually were trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Well, as you can imagine, he quickly was arrested. And he started, spending, uh, you know, he started spending the rest of his time in a Nazi concentration camp. It was in that concentration camp that he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote it on toilet paper in the Nazi concentration camp and had to smuggle out. And that book has become a classic, an icon of, uh, for Christians. He was there in the concentration camp, and there's a, there was a, an Englishman that documented his life that was there in the concentration camp with him. And he says this. He says, Bonhoeffer always seemed to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy. He was one of the few persons I have met for whom God was real and always near. He writes, On Sunday, April 8, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little worship service for us in prison, and his message went to the heart of us all. When he ended his last prayer, the guards came in and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That only meant one thing, the gallows. His last sermon on his last day was, By his stripes we are healed. 1945, April 1945, just 23 days before the Nazis were around, they executed Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He ended up making the ultimate sacrifice to push back against injustice and evil in the world for the gospel's sake. He was an amazing, amazing man, and he gave his life. He said, "He's a testament. He's a testament for us." Jesus is not calling us to a life of just getting by. He's calling us to an adventure a risk, a challenge that is greater than anything that we could possibly imagine. If you will let the gospel infiltrate your heart, change your life, we can change the world. We can change the world with the gospel of Jesus. Martin Luther King Jr. says, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. This gospel is is so inspiring and so powerful, and so transformative, it can absolutely change the world, if you let it. And the third and final point, I'm going to wrap up real quick with this. The rewards of the call. It's, it's not all doom and gloom. okay? When Jesus calls us, he calls us to life, and that more abundantly. He says, I have come that you might have life, and that more abundantly. The, the, the men of the church, a couple weeks ago, we all decided we're going to go out to the Wyman Center and we're going to we're going to do a ropes course out there. Um, how many of you guys were on that with us? Raise your hand. A bunch of you guys. Um, and you know you, you, you got to go up on this. I'm going to say I'm going to say 100 feet. Would you say, Greg? 150, maybe 200 feet up in the air? Yeah. Okay. Um, they said 30, but I really think it was closer. <laughs> and uh, you got to go up on this. Climb up this pole. You've got a little rope to your harness right here, and you go up on this little perch that's about two feet by two feet, and you come to the edge of the perch, and they say, and then you say, okay, now what? And the instructor says, jump. Jump. And you've got a rope. Like I said, the rope is this big, it's smaller than a dime. And it goes up to a pulley, and then it goes down, and you look down, and guess who's holding the rope? These guys. The guys from the church. And I remember I was the I was the first one that that went up there. I said, "Well, look, I need to I need I need to bite the bullet first here." So I go up there and I'm looking down, and the instructor says jump, and I say, "Can I choose different guys to hold the rope?" Because it's not But I tell you what, and you guys that went, you can back me up on this. The challenge of it, the risk of it, all of that, the reward of it was so overwhelmingly. Beneficial. Once you jump, that rush of adrenaline, that community, that fun, that bonding, I mean, it was awesome. It was just an incredible experience. And so the rewards outweighed the risk. Jesus is saying, no matter what the risk is, no matter what the demands are, the rewards of following me are so overwhelmingly greater than the risk or the demands that I'm still going to call you. The rewards of following Jesus are immeasurable. They're transformative. Spiritual abundance, rich community, abiding peace, deep meaning, fulfillment, purpose, destiny, strength, power, comfort, peace, eternal life. Jesus is calling you to rewards that you cannot possibly imagine. And I'm just going to read a few verses and close. John 10. And come that you might have life now more abundantly. Isaiah 41.10. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Hebrews 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 6. Why worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon, in all of his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the for the flowers of the field, how much more will He care for you, James? Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Philippians four. You can be sure that God will take care of everything. You need his generosity exceeding even yours and the glory that pours from Jesus. Over and over and over and over and over in the Bible, Jesus says, The rewards of following me are unthinkably rich and grand and immense. Yeah. Following the Lord is a challenge, it's a risk, but it is absolutely so rewarding. I could just speak from my own personal experience. For me, that, that is the case. You know, as many of you know, there were years where I was not a follower of Christ. I grew up in a Christian home, but didn't want to have anything to do with it by the time I was 19. Left the faith altogether. Left, you know, any semblance of being a Christian. And was doing my own thing for many, many years. And for me, the idea of following Christ, the idea of turning my life around, giving my life to Jesus, just seemed impossible. (laughs) Unthinkable. Why would I do it? But as he began to call on me and soften my heart and work on my heart, finally, I just gave way. I finally said, God, if you're real, I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. And the Lord opened up for me not only the ability to have faith in him and believe in him, but opened up a life that I could never imagine. Talk to somebody who knew me 10 years ago, my wife knew me 10 years ago, and ask her if she can imagine this today. The Lord has transformed my life. He has transformed our life as a family. He has transformed everything that I ever thought or wanted or needed in life. And has made my life so rich, so full, so bountiful, that I I, I just can't even imagine living without it. The rewards for following Jesus are that you are aligned with the greatest power and the greatest force in the universe. Amen. You tap into the greatest power in the universe. The Holy Spirit imbues you, and you are now, you now have access to the most powerful force in the universe. Amen. I'm just going to end very quickly with this little segment of a poem that I love. A Rudyard Kipling poem called If, and he talks about risk and challenge and the danger of taking a step, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and center to serve your turn long after they have gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither loving friends or foes can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you will be a man, my son. God is calling us to be the men destined us to be. Mm-hmm. Let me just encourage you today and challenge you today, get out on that step and jump into Amen. the arms of the Lord. Amen. He will catch you. And He will take you to your life. Amen. I'm excited, you guys. I am excited about where we're going. The next 10 weeks, come back and, and we're going to explore what this, what this adventure is all about, what it means to lead the life of following Jesus? How do we do it? Step by step. What is it? And I encourage you all and invite you all to come back. Let's pray.